This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times, where we analyze the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. This is Audrey Tan, and this is David Fogarty. And today we have Mr. Dasuno Hartono, the co-founder of the Katingan Mantaya Carbon Offset Project, tuning in from Jakarta for a chat with us about fires, haze, and how his company is trying to reduce this. Welcome, Dasuno, to the show. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you, David. It's good to be here. So, Dasuno, before we begin, can you take us to Katingan Mantaya? Tell us where is it and what is the project about. So about 13 years ago, my business partner, our current COO, Rezal Kusumat Maja, actually introduced me this idea and a proposition that we can save forests, we can actually provide sustainable livelihood for communities, and we can make money. That's how Katingan Mentaya project was born. The idea is we can restore and preserve last remaining peatland forest in central Kalimantan. For some of you who are not familiar with peatland, peatland is type of wetlands. Instead of having a typical soil that you see, it contains a lot of Basically, that would leave material, so that's why it stores a lot of carbon. And one of the reasons why peatland is being cleared in Indonesia is because the fact is the wood above peatlands are not economical, so you have to land clear it and you have to dry this wetland. The water actually acts as a protection to the peatland. Basically, if peatland is being preserved, automatically there won't be any fire. The fact is we have to drain them and then we convert them into pulp and paper or palm oil, create all this haze that you see. So, Katingan Mentai Project believes that we can actually preserve and restore this peatland forest, working with the community, make them as part of our shareholders, and providing sustainable livelihood, and eventually make money for the company. The endeavor itself took us 13 years now. We are the largest nature-based solution project in the world. We call this nature-based solution is because more and more people realize that we need nature to survive. So for what we do in terms of restoring and conserving peatland forests here in Santa Kalimantan, our company is qualified to produce approximately 7.5 to 8 million tons of credit every year. So we can actually sell this carbon credit to companies such as Shell, Volkswagen, where we more and more people understand that carbon offset in nature-based solution is a good way for us to preserve the environment. So can you give us an idea about how big is your Katingan Mataya project site? The, the area itself is about 157,000 hectares. So just to give you an example, I think Singapore is about 62,000 hectares or 65. So basically a little bit more than twice the size of Singapore. And we have approximately about 43,000 people who live in this area. Oh, that's a big forest. So it does want to tell us uh, also, given the size of the project, how much carbon is actually being saved or stored in the project itself? And when you say seven and a half or eight million tons, maybe explain to listeners what that means in terms of how that's sort of protected. So the basic idea of carbon credit project is basically we have to look into one specific area. What will happen to this area if we don't do any intervention? And then if we do our intervention, what will happen as a result of our intervention? So for example, in our Katingan Mentaya project, if this area is converted into pulp and paper as well as palm oil, there is a potential emission that happened approximately 7 to 8 million tons a year. By doing restoration and conservation, we avoid that emission to happen. Therefore, we are qualified to get that carbon credit. But it doesn't mean that the area only contains 7 to 8 million tons of credit or you know, CO2 equivalent. I mean, it is estimated that the Katingan Muntai project contains approximately 1 gigatons of carbon matters in the area. So it's a huge area, but of course, we are not going to get all that emission the next 60 years because it took some time to emit all this carbon below ground. 
And that's a lot of carbon and it's a lot of CO2 that can uh, go up in smoke if that project area is cleared. And speaking of smoke, with the dry season just around the corner, of course, peatlands have once again made headlines as Indonesia braces for more fires by declaring a state of emergency in some provinces. So just going back to the business model, how different is it the way you manage this land and use this land compared to how land is normally used in Indonesia? What makes this project just so different? I mean, the big difference what we're doing in terms of managing land is we are basically providing environmental services. Unlike other sectors such as palm oil and pulp and paper, they're actually producing something such as paper as well as palm oil. But I think the way we manage land has to be efficient in the way that we know peatland is better to be conserved and restored. The area of 157,000 hectares that we are trying to restore and conserve, 95% of that is still intact, so we have to conserve it. The 5% that is still need to be restored are the one that we have to work together with the communities. The challenges of actually putting fire out in Pitland is great. We all know that. Every year we see haze happening in Sumatra, in Kalimantan. But I think it's about changing mindset and the behavior. I think there are a lot of farmers still practicing slash and burn, where, you know, with our intervention the past five years that we've been working together with them, providing the solution on the ground, basically teaching them to do best practice in agriculture. So this thing has to be ongoing, the fact as changing that behavior happen over time. We're also educating a lot of the communities not to do size and burn or even uh, be negligent in terms of doing things in the dry season as little as just throwing a cigarette butt. But it is a process. I mean, you know, we have been having this issue for the past 20 years. And the good thing about Katingan Mata Project, it's proven that we can do this because it makes sense business-wise. That's the difference. The difference is this is not an NGO or a government work only, but a private sector can involve in this and actually provide the sustainable livelihood, preventing all the fires and make money, which is very exciting in the future if you actually want to see this solution happen. So just to recap, basically, the value of a peat forest lies underground and the currency is carbon. So by preserving the peatlands, you get to sell carbon credits and that is also good for the environment. That is absolutely correct. So basically, by preserving this environment, we are avoiding all this emission to happen. But not only that, for you to be able to sell credit in this way, in this case, getting the certification, you have to transparently show that you are benefiting the communities who live in that area. So, you know, you cannot just force communities and kick them out. You have to show all this. And uh, it goes through a very robust certification system. So I think this is one of the business models that I see clearly that you are benefiting the environment and also the community. So being inclusive and mitigating climate change at the same time. So on that note, Darsono, would you be able to elaborate basically how does your project site ensure that all the carbon remains underground? I mean, you mentioned about the importance of reaching out to the communities living on the land. So how do you encourage them not to drain the land for plantations? Or how do you ensure that you know the carbon left in the ground is not released into the atmosphere? So the idea is to preserve this area, working with communities, and make community become productive in a non-deforesting way. I think the key is to find out what we have being provided as a natural capital. I'll give you an example. We have a coconut plantation around our area that owned by communities. We actually created a much higher value product, so communities are earning more money. We are also teaching farmers to do best agricultural practice, so we actually form a 
agroecology school. We teach them how to farm well. Not only that we teach them how to farm, we're also guaranteeing that we'll be buying the product coming up from them. So creating this new concept of sustainability and create circular economy in the community base. In the meantime, we also are teaching them to be more self-governed, meaning that teach them in terms of governance system. We have been working with 34 villages in terms of teaching them how we can share the, this benefit sharing from the carbon credit sales so they can work together as a communities and feeling that they have ownership. So the model is quite interesting, unlike the NGO where they put, where the NGO will just put a program, a project. We believe bottoms up. So whatever that we see on the ground, all these activities, like I mentioned, the coconut sugar, the agroecology school that we have, we are now exploring into basically cashew. We are looking into coffee. We are looking into all these things that the farmers do, enhance it and make it into a better and higher quality product. And now we will pass it back to them. So create this productivity, higher productivity level. And it's clear that we are doing this in a non-deforesting way. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or even on Spotify and like us and give us a rating. Now, back to our conversation with Mr. Dasuno Hartono, the co-founder of the Katingan Mantaya Carbon Offset Project. So, Dasuno, I remember when I first interviewed you and uh, Rizal 10 years ago, so 2010, when you were starting out on this project. You know, it was by far the largest or peatland preservation project of its type, certainly in Indonesia. So now, 10 years have gone by, the project is up and running. How has the journey been since then, over that past decade? Uh, I know, wow, it's been more than 10 years now, I guess, David, since we know each other. I think we are still the largest nature-based solution project in the world today, and we are proud of that. I started this journey as being an entrepreneur, looking at the carbon as a currency and looking at the dollar as a profit. But I think throughout these 13 years, I realized that this is not about carbon credit. This is not about the dollar and the currency. This is actually about how we can move on and change our perspective of business, changing the paradigm that there is a way we can have a sustainable growth, not only for the environment, but also for communities as well as the private sector or company. So it has been an eye-opening experience for me. The fact is it took us 10 years to achieve our first sales. And then the companies start making money, even though we are not getting the money back yet. But I think uh, the company is in a good shape. We finally start seeing that there are real demand of carbon credit and people understand more and more of the nature-based solution credit like us. So company, like I mentioned earlier, Shell, Volkswagen, and we have other companies, financial companies such as BNP Paribas, Bank of America. So more and more people seeing this benefit of protecting the environment. And I think it's also because 10 years have passed, we see a lot of millennials understanding this issue more than people like me. I remember like seven or eight years ago when I had dinner with my friends, when I invited my friends and their kids to come. The first thing that my friends asked me when they know what I do is they said, does your company make money, Darsono? And then it's funny because their kids will be telling me that, Uncle Darsono, what you do is great and one day you will make money. So I guess um, time have passed to a point where a lot of this newer generation, the millennials, really understand the value of protecting the environment the climate change issue. And I start when we start seeing this nurturing over time, and actually I'm very excited for the future. The fact is there are more and more people, younger generation care about climate change and being inclusive will give us a lot of hope. So Desano, you know, as you mentioned, the youth climate movement is also picking up traction here in Singapore. So what about the preservation of peat forests made it so important for you? I think my business partner, Rezal, was very involved in the 1998 fire season. 
If you recall, Indonesia had gone through a very bad fire during those years because of the opening of peatland in central Kalimantan. So he understands the value of protecting peatland. Uh, the good news is finally there is a financial value to protect peatland that we can have this continue moving forward and become sustainable. I think we know this. I think it, you know, a lot of the world knows that it's important to preserve peatlands. I just feel like there was no business uh, case then, but there is a business case now. So, Dasana, what's next for Katangan Mantaya in terms of perhaps new things that you could be doing in the project or are you looking perhaps even expanding to a new area? There are a lot of options at this time. The good news is I think the government of Indonesia is really looking into this sector now. I think they're looking into building a domestic market, working with Singapore and other regional. But I think for us, there's still so many things we can do in Katangan Mantaya project. We can actually look into the three issues that always been the mantra for us, food, water, energy how we can work uh, with communities and providing this three food, water, energy sustainably for them. We are working, like I said, we're exploring things like vanilla, which is a very high-value product. We're looking into uh, biomass production. We're looking into wind power for community. All these things that in uh, Katinga Mantai project. The fact is, I was the only employee for the first six years. I don't know if you remember, David, when we talked a long time ago, I was, whereas I was still in a consulting firm and I was, I'm a lone ranger. Now yes, we right. have uh, <laughs> now we have closer to 800 staff. I think it still have a lot of room to grow in the Katingan Mantai project. But of course, being entrepreneur, we always look for other opportunities. And I'm glad that now there's a business case for us. And then the government, everybody's aware that we have to replicate more Katingan Mantai project because it's the right thing to do. So, Darshano, your dedication has paid off. Yes, indeed. But I think it's easy to say it's hindsight, right? But I think there are a lot of challenges. There are times when I, I mean, I really have to thank my wife. She really support me with this endeavor. 10 years without any income is not easy. Not for me, not even for everybody as an entrepreneur. When you don't have income for 10 years, whether you think that you know something or you felt that you just blew it. So I think there are times when I was asked and questioned by my wife whether, you know, I should give up, that I should cut loss. But I'm glad that every time that question came, I always managed to convince her that uh, give me another year. And uh, I think some of them is due to the fact that how clear I see myself helping these communities in the Cutting and Mantai project. And uh, I think I'm grateful to God that I'm given this opportunity and will be happy that I'm very excited to share this to other people because doing good and having purpose in a company is something that we all should pray for. So, Dasano, for you, I mean, 10 years is certainly a long journey. You must have an, an immense personal connection to the project. I mean, you've been there many times, you talk to the local community, you have very strong engagement. And I guess going to the forest must have a deep connection to you because you must be frightened, I guess, of what would happen if it was cleared and drained and burned, right? Because there are examples of that elsewhere nearby. So is that one of the reasons that has kept you going, that just the, the immense, I guess, beauty and the value of the place has sort of been a major sort of emotional connection for you? I guess people ask me the same question, David. They're like, is this something that you do? Is this a, a mission-driven thing? But I felt that every time I'm wanting to give up, communities always be the one that draw me back. It's, it's funny because I, maybe this is a sign that from God that I have to do this. But that's how I feel. I feel, Rezal and I always feel that we really care for this issue. We want to make this right. And we want to show that we can succeed and we can be sustainable. So I guess compared to 10 years ago, three things have changed fundamentally. First, when we started this project, offset is something that people always treat as a taboo thing to do because a lot of the NGO is advocating company like Shell, BP, and all this oil and gas company. 
thinking that they have the polluters right, meaning that, you know, we'll just pollute as much as we can if we can offset it with a project like Cutting and Mantaya. Secondly, I think the NGO feel like as the largest project in the world registered today, it somehow gave a perception that it's a new colonialism, right? A company owning or running 157,000 hectares of land in these days is considered to be huge. And I think those things has been answered the past 10 years. First, we start seeing company like the oil and gas company, the Shell of the world, the BP of the world, they're doing their best to lower emission to a point where they cannot lower it anymore. Then they do an offset. Of course, this is still debatable, but I think you see a lot of that effort has started. I think the secondly is because the NGO starts seeing Katingan Mentaya project as a benchmark where transparently the past 10 years we show that a big company like us can do this. And not only that we have to work with communities directly, we have to give the benefit transparently. We cannot just kick people out. So the idea of neo-colonialism actually suddenly was thrown out of the window. And now they understand that we need private sectors to be involved in a project like this because they will and they have to provide transparency to the communities, providing sustainable livelihood. Otherwise, they will not be able to get the certification for the carbon. And lastly, I think the fact is we finally have a newer generation, the millennial, who really understand and care about this issue, particularly about climate change and being inclusive. It makes the whole thing a ripe moment for us to thrive and to move forward. So therefore, you start seeing all these companies are making money, more and more projects coming in. And I think we are here to stay because this is one of the new paradigm of doing business going forward in the future. Well, thank you, Dasunu, for joining us today and sharing with us your story. You're welcome. And uh, thank you for having me. Thanks very much, Dasunu. I really enjoyed it. Likewise, David. For more on the Katinga Mantaya project, do check out the story on The Straits Times. That's a wrap for Green Pals and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.